A clap, how about that? Hey, so good to be together. There we go. It's not my, it's not my usual lectern. I don't know where to put my feet. But uh, anyway, it's good to be together. Hey, I'm going to start with a downer. Uh, every human being has a terminal disease, and it's called mortality. And that means that the current death rate is currently sitting at about 100%. Now, you might want to challenge me and point to the example in the Old Testament of Elijah. Didn't he get on a chariot and, and maybe Enoch? Didn't he walk with God? Okay, but two out of multiple billions still doesn't have great odds. You round it up, we're still sitting at about 100%. All of which means that if Jesus doesn't come back, I reckon in the next 100 years looking around, all of us will die. In Psalm 39, get your booklets open. In Psalm 39, verse 4 to 5, David says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. I reckon that's a prayer worth praying. Lord, would you show me well, help me to remember to number my days. Uh, everyone is but a breath. You breathe in, you breathe out. <sighs> and then we're gone. Uh, Google has a rather depressing world death clock. It tells you how many people are dying at any one time. Uh, 1.8 people die every second. 6,392 people die every hour. 56 million people die every year. That's more than twice the population of Australia die every single year. Now, we tend not to like thinking about it. We know it's true, but most of us live our lives, or at least try to live our lives, as this kind of just isn't going to happen. Why? Well, frankly, for most of us, death is scary, isn't it? In fact, the author of Hebrews says that most people live their whole lives enslaved by the fear of death. It's also tragic. Uh, if you've lost loved ones, you'll know this all too well, just how sad and devastating death can be because it separates us and brings a massive rift in our lives and our relationships. So how do we respond? Well, again, for the most part, we stick our heads in the sand. We try to ignore it. We don't really spend much time reflecting on it. Maybe church tells us a little bit about it, but I think the end result is that many of us are quite frankly unprepared for it. A part of my goal, my prayer for this talk, is to ensure that that is not the case for our church. Uh, Hebrews 2, the author writes, Since the children have flesh and blood, he that is Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Focus on that last line. If you trust in Christ, he has set you free from the fear of death. That's not to say that death is pleasant or that you are to make your peace with it, that it is your friend. No, in the words of Paul, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Uh, in the language of John the Apostle, death will one day be no more. 
But it is to say that for those who trust in Christ, we don't need to fear it. Uh, Dane Ortland writes this, For a Christian, death has been transformed from a bitter-tasting poison to bitter-tasting medicine, from a piercing sword through the heart to a piercing but life-giving syringe. In both cases there is pain, but one is pain unto destruction, the other pain into restoration. One is a doorway into darkness, and the other a wardrobe into Narnia. And to Timothy 4.6, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. Uh, Paul's speaking about his death, but notice he speaks of it as a departure. He speaks not of his ceasing to exist, not of his rotting in the ground, but of his departure, like he's going on a journey. Death for the believer is like a journey. It's getting on a train, it's getting on a bus, it's getting on a ferry, an aeroplane that will take us to be with the Lord. One of the last things that Tim Keller said a couple months ago, just before he died, is this. There is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. I wonder if you could say that right now. There's no downside to me leaving. Again, part of my desire for tonight is to help us get to a place where maybe we could, with the words of faith or a heart of faith, utter similar words to that. But I do have another goal. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe, and then he goes and unpacks really what we looked at this morning, and then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, in my nine years as a pastor, I've done a lot of weddings, but not a whole lot of funerals. I counted, I think it's only about four. Uh, as we all get older, that number is going to increase. I don't say this to shock you, but it is entirely possible that I will do a number of your funerals. It's also possible that maybe Matt and Charles might do my funeral. My brother's a pastor, so maybe he'll do it instead. But <laughs> My point is, none of us know how long we have. But one thing we can be certain of is that we as a church family have a fair amount of grief in our future together. question is, how are we going to respond? Will we grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope? Or will we do as Paul says and encourage one another with these words? My second goal for tonight is not just to help us see why we don't need to fear death, but actually to equip us with the words that we need when grief arrives so that we can encourage one another with these words. And so with that in mind, how are we going to proceed? Well, Three things. Hey, it's a three-point talk. How's that? Number one, I want to talk about the intermediate state. That'll take us through. We'll have a break. I'll ask a question. You can chat. And then we'll finish in the second half with those two, the resurrection and the body. And then I'll try and address some pastoral questions. So number one, the intermediate state. Uh, as you'll call, recall this morning, uh, we spoke about the return of Christ as our blessed hope, and we saw that part of the reason we're so excited, we hope in the, sorry, in the return of Christ, is that that is when He will return in glory, and we will see Him as He is, and the world will see Him in all His glory. 
It's also because when we who trust in him, sorry, his return is also when we who trust in him will will be raised from the dead and receive our resurrection bodies and the whole creation will be renewed. But it all raises the question, what happens to those who die before Christ returns? Right, five minutes after you die, where are you? Well, one suggestion is what's often called soul sleep. As the name suggests, soul sleep is the idea that when we die, our souls kind of fall asleep until Christ returns. And so in the same way that when you sleep, you're mostly unconscious conscious, and sort of you don't really recognize any passing in time, that's when you sleep in your bed. And in the same way, so the argument goes, when those who sleep in death, in, in the grave, they're kind of just unconscious and completely unaware of the passing of time until Christ returns. And so in favor of this understanding, soul sleep, uh, many point to verses in the Bible that describe death as a kind of sleep. And so you can see a couple of examples there. John 11 Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's actually dead, but I'm going there to wake him up, to raise him back to life. Uh, Likewise, in Acts 7, we see uh, Stephen says, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died and Saul approved of their killing him. Or consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, he, that is Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Now, on first reading, the combination of those verses all pulled together seems to make a good argument for the case of soul sleep. Then again, it is worth saying none of them technically refer to the soul sleeping, Uh, Probably it's more accurate to describe the whole person, both body and soul, as the one who sleeps. Though even then, it kind of misses the point that the language of sleeping in death in the Bible is only ever applied to those who trust in Christ, right? never to the unbeliever. In other words, sleep in the Bible is used euphemistically to highlight the fact that the fear and terror of death has been removed for those who trust in Christ. Now, even still, if those were the only verses that we had, uh, we might decide to settle for some kind of soul sleep option. Uh, But there's actually a bunch of other verses in the Bible that seem to push us in the direction of seeing that even after death and before Christ returns, we continue to have a conscious existence beyond the grave. And so probably the most, uh, or the clearest example of this, best example, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke 16. I've cut out a bunch of the details just to sort of keep it short and sharp. Uh, But the story goes like this. Jesus says, there was a rich man. He was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, 
between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, by way of reminder, it's a parable. And so when it comes to interpreting parables, you do need to be careful not to press every single detail to make a theological point. On the other hand, you can't strip it of all points, otherwise Jesus really isn't saying anything. So something needs to represent something. So what does it teach us? Well, if you kind of look at those two paragraphs, I, I do think one of the main points of the first paragraph, what it's teaching us, at least for it to make sense, is that immediately after death, both the righteous and the wicked continue to have a conscience, ex conscious existence. The righteous enter a state of what we might call provisional blessedness in the presence of God, here called Abraham's side. And the wicked enter a state of provisional and inescapable torment, here called Hades. I think for the whole thing to make sense, you have to say it's at least telling us that. What about the second paragraph? I think it's telling us when you die, that's it. Uh, C.S. Lewis is this the first time I mentioned him? Don't worry, he's coming lots more. Uh, he's got a book called The Great Divorce. He imagines a bus trip that departs from hell and goes to visit heaven. And, you know, the people from hell kind of walk around heaven and get to sit. I love C.S. Lewis, but he was wrong on that one. The parable is pretty clear. There is a great chasm that has been set in place so that no one can cross from one side to the other. Now, in case you're wondering, hang on, how is any of this relevant for the intermediate state that we're supposed to be talking about? Well, the context is, uh, the intermediate state is the context for this whole parable. It's the only way it makes sense, because if you keep reading, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to go and warn his brothers. His brothers are still alive. The last judgment, Jesus hasn't returned yet. And therefore, I think it's safe to say that Scripture does teach that after death and before the return of Christ we experience a conscious existence in one or two places. Now, aside from this parable, we don't really get a whole lot of additional information on what the intermediate state is like for the unbeliever. Though, if you want to write down 2 Peter 2 verse 9, that may have something to say about it. Then again, it might not. But what we do get, I think, is actually a fair bit more on what the intermediate state will be like for those who trust in Christ. And so, for example, take a look at the conversation between Jesus and the penitent thief on the cross. You'll know it well, Luke 23. Then the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, the penitent thief, uh, presumably he's raised in the Jewish faith, uh, he would know that kind of the belief of the Jews is that one day the Messiah would come and when he did, he would, you know, perhaps at the end of history, bring in his kingdom. And so he turns to Jesus. He knows now he's the Messiah. He's trusted in him. He says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, when it comes, remember me? And Jesus turns to him and gives him something way more than he bargained for. He says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Suppose we ask, though, what exactly is paradise? You know, what or where is Jesus promising the thief that he's going to go today? Well, that same word paradise is actually used in a description of the Garden of Eden in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch. No, it's not. It's called, what is it, the LXS? 
Septuagint, thank you, that's the one. Genesis 2, 8 and 9. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden, that word is paradise, in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, again, that same word, paradise, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the point is not so much that the word paradise means garden, but that the word paradise was used to describe the dwelling place of Adam and Eve before the fall, and I think it's fair to say with God. That word appears two other times in the New Testament. So you've got Jesus saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. It comes up two other times. The first is in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul here is speaking of this incredible vision, experience. He's not entirely sure, but he says, I'm not going to tell heaps about it, but have a listen. He says, I know a man. He's talking about himself. I know a man. I have a friend. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, there's all sorts of questions that get asked about that, but at least notice that paradise is used in parallel with the third heaven. And so he's basically saying the same thing twice. He had an experience where he was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. Was it in the body or out of the body? I'm not really sure. But what I do know is that Jesus was there, and it was incredible. I'm not, I'm not going to talk more about it, he says. I think, by the way, just remember that experience for later on. When Paul's like, you know, I want to go and be with Jesus. I think he's already seen where Jesus is. We'll come back to that. Third and final passage is Revelation 2, verse 7. This is the third place where you get that language of paradise. It says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, on this occasion, I think paradise is actually describing the new creation. We're going to think about that tomorrow morning. Because uh, when you get to Revelation 22, uh, the tree of life is in the middle of the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. But either way, when you combine all those verses together, I think you get a pretty compelling picture of what paradise is. It's a way of describing the heavenly place of blessing where God dwells. And Jesus tells the thief, hey, that's where you're going to be with me, not at the end of history, but today. Now for Paul, and this is where I want to make that case, I think it's clear that Jesus' presence in paradise is a key part of what made it so desirable for Paul. I'm saying one Philippians one. Sorry, in Philippians one, Paul writes, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ." which is better by far. Uh, as many of you know, Paul's writing here from prison. Uh, he's facing the very real possibility of execution. He could well die in a number of days. And so he's thinking through the two options. He's like, if I go on living, it'll mean fruitful gospel labor, which is clearly a good thing. But if I die, or again, notice he says depart, 
then I'm going to go be with Christ, which Paul says is better. And notice, it's not just a little bit better. It's better by far. Why? Well, presumably because he'll experience an even deeper fellowship with Jesus there. All right, don't push the illustration too far because it's not perfect, but... It's like the difference between chatting with a family member in a distant country over Zoom and being in their presence on a daily basis and living under the same roof. Hands up if you speak to someone overseas in your family every now and again. Yeah, a whole lot of us know what it's like to kind of do the whole Zoom thing. That's good, but wouldn't you in some ways so much rather actually be able to give them a hug, actually be with them in their presence? Sure, Zoom is great because it makes fellowship better, but actually being together and living under the same roof, Paul says, it's better by far. And so in Paul's mind, a departure from this world through death is not to enter soul sleep, but to go straight to where Christ is. But suppose we ask, well, will we have bodies in this intermediate state? Uh, later on, we're going to see we definitely have resurrection bodies in the new creation, what about it kind of in this intermediate state? Do we have bodies there? What's well, interesting, think back to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They seem to have bodies there, don't they? After all, the rich man seems to have a burning tongue. Lazarus seems to have a finger that's been able to be dipped in water and then, you know, cool down his tongue. So they certainly had uh, bodies in the parable that then again, I think that's probably reading too much into the details, because uh, other verses do seem to imply that we will be without bodies in the intermediate state. And so perhaps the best example of this is 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, Paul begins the, Christian, uh, the passage by talking about the Christian hope and his longing for the resurrected body, and so we'll see that first, but we'll notice where he goes in the second half, so we'll do it in kind of two halves here. Uh, so verse 1 to 4, he begins, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and we're burdened because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, Paul, classic Paul, he actually mixes a handful of different metaphors in there. But again, he begins with the, build, uh, the metaphor of a building. He says, our current bodies, your current bodies, some of us more than others, are like tents. Uh, not the glamping superstructures that some of you guys have, you know, these basically Taj Mahal type things, but the flimsy piece of tarp like they gave you at my school camp. I still remember these flimsy little thing and the rain and the wind pouring down and freezing my little butt off. He says, in contrast to that, our earthly tent, our resurrection body will be a solid and indestructible building. And so not your classic green square apartment that's full of defects, but an eternal home that will never crumble. Those are the two bodies. You've got a tent and you've got a building. But then he mixes his metaphors and he starts 
talking about his desire to be clothed with his new body rather than being unclothed and experiencing a period of nakedness. Now, there's a bit of debate as to what he's talking about there, but I think the most likely interpretation is that he's speaking about his desire to skip death and for Christ to return and clothe him with his resurrection body. I'm going to qualify this in a moment. But it seems clear that for Paul, the idea of being naked for a time, which in the metaphor means being without a body, to be a disembodied soul. It seems that for Paul, the thought of being naked is way less desirable than skipping that whole period and instead jumping straight to the point where he gets to be clothed with his imperishable resurrection body. And so he finishes with this final metaphor, which is kind of the idea of his mortal body being swallowed up by a fish. Almost like you know, the resurrection body is, is this big whale that sort of just swallows up and gollops up whole the mortal body and no longer there, but the whale is the new one. So that's how the passage starts. He seems to be describing a preference not to experience a disembodied existence, but for Christ to return before he dies and therefore before that takes place. But now look with me where he goes in the rest of the passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 to 9. He writes... But the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we will live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Paul seems to be a little conflicted, doesn't he? On the one hand, he doesn't want to be unclothed and become a disembodied soul. On the other hand, he knows that to continue in his earthly tent is to be away from the Lord. And so he says, look, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Uh, Colin Cruz summarizes this. He says, Paul seems to recognize that although he does not wish to experience a disembodied state, he will have to do so if he dies before the parousia, that is the return of Christ. But this verse expresses his conviction that even if this should be his lot for a time, it would be more preferable than remaining in the body and so away from the Lord. Let's play a quick game of which is better. Hands on head is the first one. Hands on your knees is the second one. Which is better? Peanut butter or Vegemite? Beef or chicken? Sydney or Melbourne? Oh, what are you doing? Come on, there's only one correct answer. <laughs> to be with Jesus and physically dead? Or away from Jesus, but physically alive? <laughs> Tricky, isn't it? Paul says, I love Jesus so much that I would rather be with him and away from the body if that's what it takes to be near him. Now, that might seem a little strange 
perhaps full on for some of us. Perhaps you're not yet at a place where you could say the same thing. But I reckon if anyone has a good guide as to how we ought to feel, or at least the appropriateness of feeling like that, it would be Paul. Because remember what we saw earlier? Paul says, you know, I know a guy. And that guy was caught up into paradise. I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. But what he did know is that Christ was there and that that paradise was where he was going if he ever died. And so Paul says, even if it means I would have to leave this body, I've seen paradise. I know how beautiful and glorious it is. And so, hey, if I've got to leave the body, I'd rather go there because that's where Jesus is. Let's finish with one more example. That's Revelation 6, 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The altar there is kind of symbolic of the throne of God, and so the idea is that these souls under the altar are under divine protection from God, despite the fact that they were martyred for their faith during life. What's more, they're calling out, Sovereign Lord, how long? How long? How long are we going to have to be here? How, how long is our blood going to cry out for justice? All of which is an indication they're in the intermediate state. And the final judgment hasn't taken place yet. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, if you go on and read to the end of the chapter, those souls are given robes, white robes to wear, which kind of messes your head to think about souls wearing robes, doesn't it? But they're white robes. I think it's symbolic of kind of purity and righteousness, and so I don't think we're supposed to read too much into it. Now, we're going to finish up on the intermediate state in a moment. Before we do, I just want to touch on purgatory. Because I want to make sure that I distinguish what we've been talking about from what the Catholic Church teaches as purgatory. Uh, now, for many of us, this won't be an issue, but particularly if you've grown up in Roman Catholicism, uh, you've had exposure to this, I just want to make sure that you don't hear me teaching purgatory. So what is purgatory? Well, let's... Uh, Catholic.com... That's... Uh, <laughs> That's like their formal thing. I'm letting, I'm letting them speak for themselves. This is, this is the right thing to do. This is not like Wikipedia. This is like a legit thing. It says, the catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imper imperfectly purified. It notes that this final purification of the elect is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The purification is necessary because, as Scripture teaches, nothing unclean will ever enter the presence of God in heaven. And while we may die with our mortal sins forgiven, there can still be many impurities in us, specifically venial sins and the temporal punishment due to sins already forgiven. Now, that diagram below, I think you've got one, is an attempt to flesh out basically Catholic teaching. And so up the top, you've got the saints. Uh, those are the ones whose souls are actually purified before they die, and therefore they can go straight to heaven. Down the bottom, 
You've got those who die without having repented of what the Catholic Church calls mortal sins, which are basically the seven deadlies. They go straight to hell. But then in the middle, you've got those who die without being cleansed of venial sins, which are kind of just like lesser sins. That, groups go to, that group goes to purgatory to be purged with fire and cleansed until they're purified, at which point they can then go to heaven as well. Now, just to be clear, I don't believe that. We don't believe that. Hopefully you don't believe that. Uh, why? Well, this teaching is not only foreign to the Bible, it's completely antithetical to the gospel. Uh, to begin with, it places the burden on the individual believer to cleanse themselves from their sins through acts of penance through and during their life, rather than urging them to cling to Christ as their only hope of salvation. Second of all, it completely undermines the sufficiency of Christ's death as the once-for-all purification for our sins. And so Cornelius Venema puts it like this. He says, The inevitable and unhappy fruit of the dogma of purgatory is that it diminishes the gospel of the triumph of God's grace in Christ. Rather than rejoicing in God's grace and mercy, richly lavished upon us in Christ Jesus, Believers are taught to divert their eyes to their own and others' works on their behalf. So we don't believe that, just so you're clear. All right, question. You've got two minutes. In your mind right now, right now, which is better? To be at home in the body and away from the Lord or to be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Go for it. All right, so we're jumping in, we're thinking about the resurrection of the body, and as, as Matt said, we will actually talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm in particular thinking about the resurrection of our bodies. You see, one of the things we saw from Paul before is that his hope for the life to come didn't terminate on the intermediate state. Yes, he wanted to be with Christ, and so he's willing to be away from the body if, he ha if that's what it takes to experience it, but at the end of the day, he says, you know, ideally, I'd actually love to put on the whole nice dwelling rather than the, get rid of the... I don't want to be naked, right? He wants to be clothed with his resurrection body. In other words, the intermediate state is only ever a temporary stop on the journey towards our ultimate hope of resurrection. And so Cornelius Venema puts it like this. The work of the triune God in the redemption of his people in Christ only reaches its perfection in the full participation of believers in Christ's resurrection from the dead. Until this mortal, I think body, puts on immortality, even the believer's intermediate state of provisional joy in the Lord's presence upon death is incomplete. The hope of the believer for the future does not terminate with the intermediate state, but remains fixed upon the day of Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. One of the uh, most important passages when it comes to thinking about the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll do it in kind of two sections. In this first part, we're going to look at uh, Paul is explaining the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of those who trust in him. So we'll read it, verse 20 to 23. Paul writes, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Right, notice Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus as the firstfruits. Uh, that's agricultural language. And so he wants us to imagine ourselves as farmers. Now, I have no experience as a farmer, but let's just roll with this. Imagine you are a corn farmer. And so you head out to your fields one day and you plow that field. You sow the seeds, you water the seed, you care for the seed, whatever that looks like. You do this over months and months, and the sun beats down, and the wind, and I mean, the rain waters these things. And the stalks do begin to grow, but there's still no corn. But then one day, uh, you wake up one morning, and you look out your window, and there, as you look on this crop with the green stalks, there is one yellow, glorious, full head of corn. It's the juiciest, sweetest, yellowest <laughs> corn you've ever seen. You know what that thing is? It's the first fruits. It's the first fruits. The presence of that corn is a sign and guarantee of what's about to happen all around that thing. The entire harvest load of sweet, juicy, yellowest corn is about to re be revealed, and that first one is the guarantee. Paul says that's what the resurrection of Jesus is like. His resurrection is the first fruit. It's the first one you see. It's, it's the corn, the golden, juicy. But it's a sign and guarantee that one day we too will be raised to life just like him. What that means, though, is that if you want to understand what our resurrected bodies will be like when we experience resurrection a good place to look is actually the resurrected body of Jesus. After all, take a look at the way Paul reasons in Philippians 3. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Right? If Jesus is going to transform our body so that it's going to be like his glorious body, then I think it's entirely valid to look at Jesus' resurrection body if we want to get a bit of a sense or a clue as to what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And so what do you do? What do you learn if you do that? Well, uh, perhaps the most significant thing we learn from the resurrection of Jesus is that there is continuity between our mortal bodies and our resurrection bodies. This will sound simple, but the tomb in which Jesus' mortal body was laid, so his corpse, that tomb was empty. Why? Well, by nature of the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In other words, Jesus' resurrected body wasn't a new body, it was a renewed body. If it was a brand new body that had no connection to the first one, the old one would still be in the tomb. And so this is why disciples, it's why they actually recognize or can recognize Jesus after he's raised from the dead. 
Now, I know they have a couple of false starts on the occasion. I think that has more to do with their disbelief and confusion rather than the fact that Jesus somehow looks radically different than he used to. After all, look, look at what he says to the disciples. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus didn't look radically different. He's got, guys, it's me. You know me. Now, Jesus' resurrected body still has the scars of his crucifixion, which is kind of interesting and probably raises some questions for us. But at the very least, it's clear that there is a degree of continuity between his mortal body and his resurrection body. And if that's the case for Jesus, it must also be the case for us. Now, I'm going to start to get a little quote heavy. That's because other people say it better than I do. Anthony Hokima writes, There must be continuity, for otherwise there would be little point in speaking about a resurrection at all. The calling into existence of a completely new set of people, totally different from the present inhabitants of the earth, would not be a resurrection. So we're going, what can we learn about our resurrection bodies by looking at Jesus' resurrection body? And so then I suspect you're going, well, doesn't Jesus like just magically appear in rooms? Does that mean we can sort of do this teleport thing as well? Uh, truth be told, I very much doubt it. Uh, Randy Alcorn, I don't know if I would... He almost... Here's what he says. I think he's almost a little too generous to the idea. But anyway, he says, Christ's body could be touched and clung to and could consume food, yet it could apparently materialize as well. How is that possible? Could it be that a resurrection body is structured in such a way as to allow its molecules to pass through solid materials or to suddenly become visible or invisible? Uh, though we know that Christ could do these things, we're not explicitly told we'll be able to. It may be that some aspects of his resurrection body are unique because of his divine nature. D, relationship of seed to plant. 1 Corinthians 15, so we're kind of now pushing into that next part of 1 Corinthians. Paul, he's going to just use this analogy, a metaphor, a relationship. He says, but someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? And he asks the question, the kind of question we're asking. With what kind of body will they come? He tells us we're foolish. How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Uh, Paul's fleshing out the connection between the mortal body and the resurrection body with this metaphor of a seed and a plant. And so he begins by saying, the way you get the fruit is by planting the seed. And so in the same way that our present bodies die and are sown in the ground, so to speak, uh, they will later bear the fruit of their resurrection bodies. But then he makes the point that no matter how great the difference is between the seed and the fruit it eventually bears, which sometimes is pretty massive, it is still of a kind. That is, 
you don't plant a corn and get an apple tree. You don't plant a human and get a bird or a fish. In other words, in our resurrection, we're not going to suddenly become green aliens or two-headed monsters. We will be distinctively and recognizably human because that's the kind of seed that was sown. It's also the kind of fruit you see in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Cornelius Venema writes, The resurrection of the body is likened to the dying of a seed sown in order that it might come to life in the form of its fruit. This means that the resurrection body is of a distinctly human kind. When God raises believers from the dead, their bodies, however new and changed, and so he's not neglecting, they will be new and changed, but they will remain distinctively and peculiar human according to their kind. Next analogy is kind of one or a relationship of the sun to the moon. And Paul's going to go on and he's actually going to draw four contrasts between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. And so he says the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another. And one star differs from star in splendor. And so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Before we look at the contrast, just notice that first kind. Uh, consider the splendor of the sun compared to the splendor of the moon. One is a red-hot ball of energy radiating glory and majesty, the other is basically a dead rock that simply reflects the light of the sun. That's the kind of relationship between the resurrection body and our bodies right now. The glory and majesty of the one far outweighs the other. And so Paul, to kind of try and flesh it out, he, he draws a number of contrasts. The first is the perishable will be replaced with the imperishable. Right, for the moment of conception, our perishable bodies have the seeds of death in them. Atrophy is real. Now, when you're young, you don't really notice it all that much, but the older you get, you start to feel it more and more in your bodies. I remember the difference between being 27 and 28 because when I was 28, it took me a whole day to recover from playing basketball the night before. When I was 27, I could do it. And now I just feel like I've got injury after injury. Didn't used to be that way. Again, the older we get, the worse it becomes. Some of you are painfully aware that your body is perishing. But Paul says, the new one will be imperishable. No longer liable to death or disease, but indestructible. Second, dishonor versus glory. When someone dies, yes, we tend to sort of put makeup up on and dress them, certainly if there's any sort of going to see the body. But the whole thing, in reality, is just covering up for the fact that death is dishonorable. Um, God told Adam, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Putting a body in the ground is a terrible thing. And yet, for those who trust in Christ, there is a remarkable hope in that moment. Uh, in the burial service of the Book of Common Prayer, it says, We therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, 
dust to dust in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to life. C.S. Lewis writes, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may be may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Sown in dishonour, raised in glory. Third, weakness versus power. This one I think is probably similar to the first one. Our present bodies are prone to weakness, right? Bones break, tendons snap, muscles atrophy, but our resurrection bodies will be raised in power. How exactly is that power manifested? I don't know, but I'm sure we'll know it when we see it. Fourth, natural versus spiritual. Now, it's important to notice that Paul isn't contrasting spiritual with physical. Notice he doesn't say one is natural, one is physical, or one is spiritual, sorry, one is physical. He says one is natural versus spiritual. As we've already seen with Jesus, our resurrection bodies will be physical. He tells his disciples, guys, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones. Touch me. And therefore, the contrast is more about a contrast between a body that belongs to the present age of sin and the curse and a body which belongs to the age to come, which is elsewhere called the age of the spirit. Not because it's immaterial, but because it's an age ruled by the spirit of God. Cornelius Venema summarizes the contrasts like this. He says, all of these contrasts combine to paint a striking picture of the glory of the resurrection body with which believers will be clothed at the last day. This body will be of a human kind to be sure, but not like anything believers have seen or known in this life. A body no longer ravaged by sin and its consequences, a body that will be fit and enduring building in which to dwell and enjoy unbroken and unbreakable fellowship with Christ and those who are his. Bring it on. All right. To finish up, I want to try and address some pastoral questions, uh, kind of questions that may have popped up as a result of what we've been thinking about. Because remember, the goal in some ways of the talk is to help free us from the fear of death and give us words to speak so that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So question number one, what does it look like to die well? Uh, This is a massive question. It's a question that whole books, numerous books have been written about. But I guess I just want to flag it for us in some way as as a point of consideration. Because most of us, not all, but most of us, will be thoroughly unacquainted with death. Uh, In 1908, only 14% of death occurred in an institutional setting, in other words, like a hospital. Most deaths occurred at home. By the end of the century, that figure had increased to 80%, and I reckon today it's even more. Most Most deaths occur in closed doors at hospitals away from us. What it means is that even though death, strictly speaking, it is everywhere around us, we don't see it. It's moved out of the home, it's into the hospital, and so now doctors and nurses care for the patient. Now, frankly, often because their expertise is required. And the beauty of all that is that it has actually allowed a number of us to sort of outlive what previously might have killed us. And so there's a lot that is good about it. 
But in the process, I think we've forgotten what death looks like and as a result, we've lost something. Our previous centuries used to believe in something called the art of the good death. In his book, The Art of Dying, Rob Moll writes, Christian, writes about Christians in former times. He said, death, Christians believed, was not just a medical battle to be fought, though they did use medicine for healing, nor was death simply about loss of precious relationships to be mourned. Instead, this was a spiritual event that required preparation. The dying person performed it in public as evidence of their faith and to provide instructions for others. Injured at the death of a fellow Christian, the church community then rallied together to grieve and to express once again their faith and knit themselves together in a new way. Can't help but feel like we've lost the art of the good death. A study in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that people of religious faith, and at least according to this study, roughly 95% of them claim to be Christians, were three times more likely than the average person to choose aggressive medical treatment at the end of their lives, even though they knew they were dying and that treatments were unlikely to lengthen their lives. Now, on the one hand, we might see that as beautiful evidence of faith that God can work miracles and so we're not wanting to give up on hope. Amen to that. On the other hand, could it also be a sign that sometimes we're living in denial and putting our hopes in medicine rather than preparing for the inevitable. Now, don't mishear me. But I've said this recently a number of times. We want, to be a number of, we want to be a people of prayer. We want to pray that God would work miracles. And yet, I guess my concern is that sometimes doing all that can come at the expense of preparing the individual and the family for what may be the inevitable, God's will. Uh, Derek Thomas describes the tension as follows. Imagine, for example, a person who's been diagnosed with a virulent form of cancer. All treatment options have been exhausted. Mitigating the pain is the best that can be offered. How then should we pray? Imagine a pastor at the bedside with an anxious spouse and children waiting for him to pray. What do I pray? Barring some sort of miracle... And we must never rule out that possibility. Death seems imminent. Should we pray for healing? Perhaps, and perhaps not. Sometimes the best thing is to prepare everyone for what now looks like the will of God. And when we are ready to die, knowing what lies on the other side, it is better to look death in the face and say, I do not fear you. Jesus has taken the sting of death away He is the resurrection and the life, and though I die, yet shall I live. Grace City, all night, we've spoken about the hope that we have, the hope that when we die, we'll go to be with Jesus, the hope of the resurrection, that when Christ returns, we will be like him. So let me make it your ambition to die well. Does that mean you won't experience any fears or doubt or anger? No. Satan's not going to stop just because you're getting near the end. He's going to work even harder. But I think 
the more we prepare ourselves for it now, the better equipped we will be. Isaac the Syrian once wrote, Prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, Come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. Next, cremational burial. As we spoke about the continuity of mortal bodies with our resurrection bodies you may have found yourself thinking about or wondering about what are the implications for how we think about, for how we treat the body of deceased believers. And so, for example, should we cremate or bury their bodies? Now, just for the sake of full disclosure, this whole topic was totally brand new for me. Uh, if I, I may be wrong but I think I've only ever been to one burial service in my life, and the reason I remember it is because I ran the service. But aside from that, I think every funeral I've ever been to has involved cremating the body of the deceased, and that includes the body of believers. And so again, literally prior to probably a month ago, I would never have thought twice about cremation. But, but given what we've seen about the continuity of our present bodies with our resurrection bodies, it's at least worth asking the question, should we cremate or bury the body of deceased believers? Well, the truth is it depends who you ask. And so, for example, I'll give you two different opinions here. The first, uh, some of you will love this man, John MacArthur. There you go. He, he writes, dust to dust, Scripture says nothing about a required mode of burial for either believers or non-believers. Obviously, any buried body will eventually decompose, so cremation isn't a strange or wrong practice. It merely accelerates the natural process of oxidation. The believer will one day receive a new body. Thus, the state of what remains of the old body is unimportant. What we need to focus on as Christians is not how to dispose of our earthly bodies, but that one day new bodies will be fashioned for us like our Lord's glorious resurrection body. There's one idea. MacArthur says, doesn't matter, you may be inclined to agree with him. But at least for a moment, just consider an alternative opinion. Uh, Russell Moore, he writes, the question is not whether God can reassemble cremains. The question is whether burial is a Christian act, and if so, then what does it communicate? Of course God can resurrect a cremated Christian. He can also resurrect a Christian burned at the stake, or a Christian torn to pieces by lions in a Roman Colosseum, or a Christian digested by a great white shark off the coast of Florida. But are funerals simply the way in which we dispose of remains? If so, graveyards are unnecessary too. Why not simply toss the corpses of our loved ones into the local waste landfill? For Christian, burial is not the disposal of a thing. It is a caring for a person. In burial, we're reminded that the body is not a shell, a husk tossed aside by the real person, the soul within. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the body that remains still belongs to someone, someone we love, someone who will reclaim it one day. A number of articles I read 
pointed out that it's, it's only in recent years that creation, sorry, cremation has become even a thing among Christians. Uh, in fact, in an article on Desiring God, John Piper makes the observation that basically the more pagan a nation gets, the more it will start to cremate its dead. And that where Christian influence is giving way to rapid secularization, cremation increases more and more. And so in this article, he explains why he uh, favours burial over cremation. Uh, but have a listen to how it begins, because I, I think his is probably more pastorally sensitive. He says, I want to give biblical pointers for why burial is preferable to cremation. I say preferable, not commanded, in the hope that the culture created would not condemn or ostracise a person who chose differently. I encourage those who choose cremation not to equate our disapproval with ostracism. Otherwise, real disagreements are not possible among friends. I, I think that's helpful. I say that because most of us, myself included, have cremated loved ones. And so the last thing we need to do is feel guilty or ostracised for that. It's going to be really unhelpful. Having said that, I'd encourage you to go read the article because he does make some really interesting points, particularly if you've just never thought about this whole thing, which is where I found myself about a month ago. But he concludes the article like this. He says, I'm encouraging churches to cultivate a Christian counterculture where people expect simple, less expensive funerals and burials and where we all pitch in so that a Christian burial is not a financial hardship on anyone. And because of the biblical pointers and the additional reasons above, he's talking about his article, I'm arguing that God-centered, gospel-rooted burial is preferable to cremation. Preferable, not commanded, but rich with Christian truth that will become a clearer and clearer witness as our society becomes less and less Christian. For Piper, a lot of it ends up being on the witness of the funeral and what's communicated about the hope of resurrection through burying the body. I'll submit that to you for your own thoughts. Okay, what about bodies that have been destroyed? Right, Russell Moore seems to state with absolute confidence that things like being burned alive or eaten by a lion or a shark can't and won't prevent God from raising those people back to life. But it raises the question, doesn't it, right? If the resurrection body is in substantial continuity with the present body, then how does that work in the case of bodies that have been destroyed? Well, I'm just going to quote for you from Venema here. He says, The difficulty this question poses has to do with whether the material particles or constituents of the present body must be identical with those of the resurrection body. Nothing in the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the body requires that this be the case. It may be the case... After all, it's certainly possible that God could form the resurrection body from the same identical particles as the present body, but this need not be the case in order for a substantial and personal identity to exist between the present body and the resurrection body. We commonly regard our bodies as the self-same bodies, even though they undergo considerable change through age and infirmities, even being composed wholly of new cells every several years. If our present bodies are one and the same with our bodies many years ago, then it would seem no problem to affirm the resurrection of the proper bodies of those whose earthly bodies have been wholly destroyed. What age are we going to be in the resurrection? 
I was 27 because that was the tipping point. <laughs> I joke, but honestly, it's, it's pretty close. Have a listen to this. Um, so many theologians have actually speculated on this question, and they basically land, well, those in the past, have said that since Jesus was raised to life at about age 33, our peak age and the age of our resurrected bodies will be 33. So some of you guys must be cheering. You're at the peak age right now. <laughs> Others of us are past the peak. So Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, they're two people that make that argument. Now, honestly, I don't think I agree with the logic. It's possible, but I don't agree with the logic. At the very least, I think it's safe to assume that if you die at 90, all wrinkled and frail, your resurrection body isn't going to be wrinkled and frail. Or rather, our body will probably have the appearance of a younger and healthier body, uh, not to mention the fact that it's now going to be indestructible, glorious and powerful. What about those who die before they reach that age, though? What about the death of the fetus in the womb? Or the infant child or teenagers? What will their resurrection bodies be like? Well, the truth is, uh, we're not told enough to answer with any confidence. But people have speculated, and so I'll share two speculations. They're, they're different ideas. So the one is Cornelius Venema. He says, since the final state is one of complete perfection and glorification, it must be the case that all who share in this perfection will do so in a state of full maturity. In the final state of God's eternal kingdom, there will, be, there will not be anything like the process of growth and maturation as we know it. Just as they will neither marry nor be given a marriage, so there will be no distinction between adult and child, at least not as we now experience them. Hard as it may be for us to imagine, we should be confident as believers that we will enjoy fellowship with all the saints including those children who die in the circumstances mentioned above in the fullness of mature and perfected life. So there's one option. We're all kind of the same age, mature. At Randy Alcorn takes a slightly different approach. He's at least honest enough to say he's speculating. He says, this is another one of those areas where we have to speculate. We don't have direct biblical teaching on this. We do have those passages in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 that seem to clearly have some children in the new earth. I think one possibility is they could be resurrected at the age they were when they died. If that is the case, then God would not fast forward. They as children could literally grow up on the new earth. That is speculation, but to me it would fit beautifully with Luke 6 and other passages where God brings comfort to the mourners in the sense that he says, you've been through this, but I will compensate in the world to come in the resurrection. You've experienced mourning, I will give you laughter. You were deprived of raising a child who died at a young age, maybe you'll be able to be there with your child as he or she grows up in the new earth without threat of death, harm, abuse or anything else. Clearly both are speculating. But tomorrow, I think there is, I'm going to explain why I think there is in some ways benefit to sanctified speculation. Uh, as long as we're honest enough to say we're speculating, I think 
fueling our imagination for what God's heaven will be like, I think, is in some ways a way of stirring and fueling and uh, putting fire on the hope of our hearts. So I thought I'd share that with you. Let me close. As I close, I'm going to do it with a poem. I'm actually going to quote the start of this poem tomorrow when we ask the question, will there be pets in heaven? <laughs> um, but this is the second half of it now. It's by John Piper. He's talking about the wholeness of life and our resurrection bodies in the new creation. He says this. And again, I'm starting halfway through, so it might take me a moment to get into it. He says, I knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned and saw a wonder there. A big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice to sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free. And every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within. And every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. Unless Christ returns, all of us are going to die. But the good news is we don't need to fear death. For those who die in Christ will be at home with the Lord. And when he returns, they, we, will be raised, transformed with glorious resurrection bodies for all eternity. And so, Grace City, when a brother or sister in Christ, in particular in this church, dies, there will be grief. There will be deep, deep grief. Death is an enemy and an unwelcome intruder in God's world. But one day, even death will be destroyed. And so, in the words of Paul, let us not grieve at those who have no hope. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful hope that we have of should we die before your Son returns, that we might be at home with the Lord. But more than that, thank you for the hope of the resurrection that your son rising from the dead guarantees our resurrection that we might be healed cured and made whole never to die again amen <laughs>